0: For a little bit there we had the theme of of persecution. Well, what would happen if some people came bursting into the doors, they had automatic weapons, and they started threatening every one of us, saying, any of you that are Christians, you're going to be die, you're going to be dead. Any of you that aren't can leave. How many of you would stay and how many of you would go? That's a serious question, but because we're in America, we don't think it's going to be a big thing. Yet more than half of the true church in the world, I'm talking about true born-again Christians, people that are walking with Jesus, more than half of the the church in the world is suffering persecution or is um, in an environment that it could break out any moment. Do you understand the amount of people in the world that are true followers of Jesus that are facing that kind of situation every single day because they have surrendered their life to Christ? And because we haven't, we don't understand. Because we're not in that situation, we don't really understand. What would make the difference between you staying and facing a bullet in the head? Or running out there to save your life? What would be the difference? What would be the one single thing? And that's really what I'm going to concentrate on. The one single thing. And it's not a Bible degree. It's not denominational credentials. Peter made this boast just before Jesus was going to be crucified. He made this boast: "I'll never deny you, Lord. I'll never deny you." And so Jesus prophesied: "says so Before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times." "Oh no, no! I'll never do that. I'll lay my life down." And all the other apostles and disciples saying the same type of thing, telling, you know, telling Jesus how we're just be faithful to the end. And he just he knew it was inside of them. He knew. But yet they hadn't been. And if I might say it like this, there's a mystery with this, but. If I could say it like that, they hadn't been born again yet. Jesus hadn't died on the cross and rose again from the dead. They were disciples, but it would be after his resurrection that I think that they is where they really came to salvation, and then there would be this change in their life that would be huge. Back up. <laughs> I came prepared. So what happened? Jesus was arrested. All the disciples fled. The only one we know for sure that ended up at the the cross to see it was the Apostle John. None of the other ones were there. The women were there. The women showed up. women were braver than the men. And it tells us in in the Gospel of Luke that when, when Peter denied the Lord the third time, that Jesus turned and looked at him. Can you imagine that? I can a little bit. Because I've known times where I have failed my God. And I don't think it would be as bad as what Peter experienced. Instead, he went out and wept bitterly. Do you know what happened for the next three days? That man wept and wept and wept and wept and wept and wept. Agony for three days. Agony. Self abuse. Abuse from devils. Just beating the man up. Just beating himself up. What a coward. What a fool. How could I have done that? You know, all the arguments and everything else in his whole world torn to pieces in, in a moment. And then comes the resurrection, of course. Can you just think of this for a moment? When when Jesus showed himself to the apostles that very first time, and just imagine you were one of the disciples that fled, but I'm uh, trying to imagine even more so that you were Peter that, that you denied the Lord three times and you, know, you want to go and wrap your arms around Jesus and you want to run in the opposite direction because you don't want to have to answer to Him. Because you know you're going to have to give an answer. You know you're going to have to give some kind of response. And it would be this, this tearing apart on the inside. You know you want Jesus to be so near, and you, yet you want to run from Him because you know what you have been, what you've done. Jesus didn't say anything. The next time he shows up with the, uh, with the apostles, Thomas is there, and he gives Thomas a rebuke for his unbelief, but it doesn't look like Jesus, at least from what we're told. And there was a lot more conversation, a lot more that went on in those encounters and what we read about, but we don't see of any, rebu- any rebuke at all. You know, Peter's not, not dealt with. And then we come to the third time that Jesus shows himself to the apostles, and this is where we're going to be in, in John chapter 21. And uh, you've probably heard many messages on this. I hope I share something a little different. But this is the third time that Jesus showed himself to the apostles. The seventh time that he's revealed himself since the resurrection. And so what's going on here is the men had been out fishing all night. Five apostles, two disciples... Caught nothing, reminiscent of when Jesus had his first encounter with Jesus in Luke chapter five. Caught nothing and Jesus on the shore, they don't recognize him. And he says, did you caught something? No, I haven't caught we haven't caught anything. says, so cast your net on the right side of the boat. And I don't doubt there was some apprehension or whatever, but you know, they got used to strange things that Jesus said and strange things that happened, so they did it and they caught this humongous amount of fish for them hundred and fifty three large fish. When John was the first to recognize who it was, and he says, it's the Lord, and then Peter was the first to run to Him. And so he put on his robe and hopped in the water and went ashore and let the rest of the guys drag the fish in and the boat in. And, uh, and then Jesus goes to him and says, come and dine. I really like how they say it in the King James Version. The, some of the other translations, it's kind of dry, you know, but come and dine, that just sounds so sweet. You know, really what it is, come and have breakfast. But how do you say that sweetly? You know <laughs> I mean, so it's just a, a nice way. You know, come and dine. Come, come, just come. You know, and you know what they all did? They all sat around a campfire, okay? That's what would have been on the beach there. He was cooking some, some fish and he had some bread there and this was a, a supernatural supply, okay? Not hard for Jesus, especially since, you know, uh, a couple times prior he had multiple, fish and bread, so nothing hard there. You know, but he has this meal cooking and and uh, they all gather around and none of them ask, who are you? They knew. They knew who he was. And and I guarantee you, every single one of them saw Jesus in a, in a different light than they ever saw him before before his death and resurrection. And uh, as I think of this this environment, this setting that's here, I just think of, of all these disciples sitting around Jesus saying absolutely nothing. Because what can you say? You are now sitting in, this, in the presence of one that you're in awe of. And it's not like, okay, you everybody want to hear me talk for a while? Like, you know, Jesus, you want to hear me talk, don't you? And it was none of that. They were, all, they were all silent because Jesus was speaking. And these were times, these times after his resurrection, before his ascension, were times where he was pouring into the lives of these that would have to now learn what it is to walk by faith. Up until this point, they weren't walking by faith that much. Sometimes when they went and were used for miracles and preaching, they had to walk by faith, but this would be a whole different thing that they're in now because Jesus wouldn't be with them in that same way again. And so he's preparing them. And what we're going to look at is Jesus finally rebukes Peter. But when we look at this rebuke, this is probably the sweetest rebuke I could imagine. And Jesus could have just raked a man over the coals. But he didn't. Because what we're going to see through this is there was an agenda that Jesus had. And what was the agenda? Reconciliation. Okay, that was the whole thing. He was about reconciling this man and those men To himself. And there was a way that it would be accomplished and he was going to do it in the wisest way because if he didn't do it correctly, he could rebuke the man and the man would never change. But if he does it right, if he does it the correct way, he will deal with the reality of why Peter denied the Lord. Because that's really what Jesus wants to do. He wants to get at the very reason why Peter denied the Lord. Because if you don't get to that, you don't get to the problem. And Peter would keep then repeating it, repeating it, repeating it, repeating it. Because the problem was never dealt with. It was just glossed over with a rebuke. Rather than dealing with the reality of the problem. And that's what God really wants to deal with in our own life. He wants to get to the root of the issue in our own lives Because He wants us to walk in a place of nearness with Him, but if we don't really let Him deal with the real issue, we'll just keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over again because it's just like a Band-Aid on cancer instead of going after the cancer. Jesus has this thing. He goes after the real issue. And so, I just think Peter was nervous once again. I think all those men were because they all fled. Okay, so none of them had the ability to boast. They all fled. And so they're they're sitting around there. And a third time, they're getting a little more comfortable, but the, they're, they're still uncomfortable. What's he going to say to me? And so what does he do? He just has them eat. And I don't doubt through that time, he's not chit-chatting. He's teaching. He's pouring into them. But eating and getting comfortable. And the guys are just getting real comfortable. And when everybody's comfortable and they're just like, okay... You know, like Peter going, I'm not going to have to say anything. I don't have to, he knows, you know, I don't have to say anything. But that's when it comes. And so, this happens in the presence of the other men that are there. It's not in some place secret, it's with them all. So, Peter was was one of the apostles, the leader, uh, uh, like a, a lay leader, if we might say it like that at that time, of the of the other disciples serving Jesus in a closer uh, way and, and being trained. And, and then, and so Jesus is going to deal with him publicly, not to bring shame to him, not to beat him down or anything else, but it was a lesson that all the men needed to hear, since Peter would be the one that he's going to be focusing on. And so it begins in John 21, verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Now, you know, you go and you read the commentary, commentaries on this, and, you know, Peter denied the Lord three times, and three times he asked this question, and they try and make a correlation between it. I don't think there's any correlation. I don't think there's any correlation. I don't think something should be made of it. What it is is Jesus is going to take this man on a journey. He's going to take him on this little path to expose his heart. And this is what it's going to take to expose his heart, to help the man understand what was in him. And it had to be in this particular way. And so Jesus is being very wise. Now, to understand this, we've got to understand Greek. Okay? Because if we don't understand the Greek here, we're going to miss it. All right? We're going to miss it big time. So we have to understand the Greek. And, you know, sometimes it makes, sometimes it's important, sometimes it's not as important. This time it's seriously important. And so, what happens here is, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? And the word love there is agape. And agape is the highest, most perfect kind of love that implies a clear determination of the will and judgment. That definition comes from ISBE, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. That's a a scholarly um, uh, work. And so, it's a pretty good uh, definition of it. So, this is how God loves. God loves by the choice of His will, not by emotion. So, He chooses to love us when we're very unlovable, right? So, He makes that choice. And I'm glad that He doesn't change... Because if he loves by emotion, he'd be like us, and our love can come and go depending on whatever way the wind's blowing. You know, but his isn't. His is a faithful, consistent love because of who he is, because it is a choice of the will. So when he loves people, he says, I choose to love you. And he's not loving us because we're good, because we're right with him even. He says, I choose to love you. Now, the difference is going to be whether or not we put ourselves in a place to know that love and experience that love and be able to benefit from that love. But he makes the choice. And so, you have this word agape now, but you have this little phrase that adds emphasis to it. And this is important here. So, do you agape me more than these? And so, this is a very important thought that's here. So, I don't know how it played out, and I could give all kinds of scenarios. I'm not going to take the time to do that. But Jesus was saying, do you love me more than these? And what would be the these right there? In His presence, it would have been the apostles and disciples. Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these men that you've been with for three years, three and a half years, that you've had this bonding with because you've been so close to them, the unity that can be there? Do you love me more than these? If his family would have been there, he would have said, do "You love me more than these. You love me more than your big strapping boys that are going to take over the family business. Do you love me more than your wife?" Or it could be the aspect that he was pointing to the to, to the fishing boat. There was a lot of money tied up right now in that boat with all those fish. Says, so "You love me more than this, Peter. More than your occupation. More than your identity in who you are as a man. Do you love me more than these?" And the Greek doesn't play this out, but it really does become central to it. Do you love me more than yourself, Peter? Because that's really the problem that happens, because that's central to it all, this love of self. And so he's confronting us about these other things in our life, these idols, these other loves, these other passions. and, And so do we love him more than these? And so do you truly love Jesus more than these? Now, I'm going to take that thought there, agape more than these, okay, love more than these, and I'm going to use a phrase through the rest of this message, and it's going to be to love God supremely, okay? That way there it's a little easier than trying to put all those words together all the time. And uh, so, Jesus was asking, do you love me supremely? Peter, do you love me supremely? But what does it mean to love God supremely? Have you processed that in your own life? Have you really taken the time to understand what does it mean to love God supremely? And so, of course, you get to the nitty-gritty. Am I the supreme love of your life? Am I the love that's above all other loves? What we think so often is that love is kind of like a pie. And some people have a little pie, other people have a big pie. No, it's a pie. And it's divided up, and we can give this much to that person, this much to that person, that little slice. The sliver to Jesus and so on. So once the pie is all gone, we have no more to give. But that's not what the word of God's telling us. We're to give him the whole pie. And when we love him with everything, then this phenomenal thing happens. He gives us the grace to begin to love others better than we could have ever loved him before we began to love him with everything. And so it goes totally against everything we think in the natural. Because if I will give Him all my heart, if I will love Him with everything, then I will love my wife better. I will love my children better. I will love the church better. I will love the lost better. I will love everybody in my life better. But if I fail to do that, what's going to replace this loving God supremely is going to be loving me supremely, which is going to make me selfish in my love towards everybody else. And so the only way that I can love better other people is, I must love God supremely. So he's asking Peter, do you love me supremely? What else does it mean? If you love me supremely? Then am I your supreme source of pleasure? I mean, shouldn't that be it? Do I like being with Him more than anybody else? You know, prayerlessness reveals people who don't really like being with Jesus. And why don't they like being with Him? Because they don't love them supremely. I mean, they can make all the excuses. They can say this and that about their situation. Oh, yeah, I love God. Oh, I talked to Him on the... You know, when I drive to work. But the reality is, if you loved Him supremely, you'd want to spend much time with Him. It would not be hard. It wouldn't be twisting your arm or like pulling a, a, a tooth. Because it would be the joy of your life. Because you've come to love Him supremely. You love being with Him. And you love spending time with Him. And it becomes this joy... But if you can go and give yourself to other pleasures in this world, they may not necessarily be in and of themselves evil. They may just be things that consume the heart, consume the attention, and you almost can't live without them. Take the uh, average American. If you shut the TV off, they'll go through withdrawals worse than heroin. I'm not kidding. You want to freak some people out, some Christians out, say, shut your television off for the next year. And they'll be in the car going, I can handle that. I mean, it's crazy because we become so attached to it. That becomes a supreme source of pleasure in our life, to define our life, because God has not become the supreme source of pleasure. So that's a pretty serious issue, isn't it? But if He becomes my supreme love and my supreme source of pleasure, guess what else He becomes? He he becomes my supreme source of obedience. That I will obey Him above anyone or anything, no matter what. He becomes, as my supreme love, the one I obey first and foremost. And if people go against the call to obedience to Him, then I would obey Him rather than people. Even if it landed me in jail for the cause of Christ or... Martyrs for the cause of Christ, they become irrelevant because if he's the prize, then it's what we seek after. The last one I'll deal with in this is uh, if he's my supreme love and my supreme source of pleasure and my supreme source of obedience, then he's going to be my supreme source of my identity. And so the people you work with, if they were asked, uh, so-and-so, what do you think of him? What, what, What kind of person is he? And the first thing out of their mouth is, well, that guy's a Christian. If it's not that, something's wrong then. Because your identity is something else. And people are seeing you in a very different way. They're not seeing you as you pretend to perceive yourself. They are seeing you in a whole different light. And so our identity needs to be so much consumed in this relationship with Jesus that our identity is defined by that relationship and people begin to look at us and say that man that woman they know God they know God they got the mark of God upon their life I see it in how they talk and how they act I see it how they deal with issues in their life and so on and so when he is our supreme love he will be our supreme identity he will defy everything define everything in our life and only by loving Him supremely can we fulfill our calling. Now, you know, that's a serious one because until we love Him supremely, we're only going to hit and miss his, his, his will. And if you are just doing your own thing, then you're not in His will at all. You're just doing your own thing. But if we want to do His will, it's only going to be done by loving Him supremely that these things go on, that He becomes my supreme source of pleasure, my supreme obedience, and my identity that I'm not ashamed to be a follower of Jesus then. Now, Peter responded, and you know, here, you know the English language is a beautiful language, very descriptive. All these words that you can describe something, I mean, it's just, they're abundant there. You know, you want to take one thing and you can have all these descriptive words to add to it, to build it up, and to make it stronger in your mind. But here we have one word that is just not enough, and so it's the word love, you know, so it's like, oh, I love my wife, I love pizza, I love God. You know, I mean, it's, it had that one word, and there's nothing that differentiates it. But that's not the way it is in the Greek. There's, it has more description with the word love. So when Peter responded and says, you know that I love you, he didn't use the word agape. And he didn't use the word more than these. You know what word he used? He used the word phileo. And what's the, what's the definition to phileo? This comes from Isbe again. He says it means the natural human affection and is never used in Scripture to designate man's love to God. Now, here's the, the reality. Is, uh, you know if, if you gain any real intelligence, uh, it's really smart then not to lie to somebody who knows everything. Okay? Just not smart. So what do you do, you know? I mean, what do you do? And we'll see in just a little bit that, that Peter at this point, this is before his ascension, Peter at this point acknowledges that Jesus is God, acknowledges his divinity. So in the aspect that he is, is acknowledging his divinity, he's acknowledging the reality that I can't lie to you, and if I lie, I'm in bigger trouble So I might as well be honest. And so if we were to take that little phrase and put it in some better kind of English, Peter wouldn't be saying, you know that I love you. He would actually be saying, you know that I like you very much. All right, let's get an understanding there. Peter is being honest. It's easy to go to God and say, I love you, unless he's standing right there and now he's going to respond. So what's he going to say to us? You can go say, oh, I love you with everything. Um, well, let me just describe your day, and let's see if you really do love me with everything. You know? Here's what's been going on in your life. Do you really love me with everything? Do you want to change your answer? Because it might change then if we're in his presence and have to give an account to it. And you know what's so interesting about this? Jesus didn't even respond. He's going to deal with it. Okay, we'll see that in a moment. He's going to deal with it. But uh, he didn't respond right there. So what did Jesus do? He goes to him and he says, Peter, I want you to feed my lambs. I want you to feed my lambs, Peter. So he's going to deal with this issue, but he's trying to bring to him that I haven't rejected you. I haven't abandoned you. I have purpose for you, Peter. Okay, you denied me three times. Yes, you did. You swore that you didn't know me. But Peter, I have a mission for you, and I want you to feed my lambs, my little ones, my little babies. And you know, that is, if you think of it, they can be fun ministry, right? The little babies. And uh, so, you know, in my, when I passed in Wisconsin, I had a, a shepherd in my church. And so, uh, you know, he had all these sheep, and so he let us come over once to see right after a, a, a lamb was born. And this cute, adorable little thing, and it doesn't take long before they get nice, cute, and fuzzy and everything. And, you know, I mean, they're just, okay, a ministry to lambs, that sounds okay, you know. Well, of course, the lambs he's referring to here has to do with, do with people, but these are going to be kind of like the newborn babies that, come into the church, or the, you know, young people, and yeah, they got a lot of mess in their life, but they're just hungry little sponges, and, you know, so it's just kind of fun to minister to them. Uh, he'll deal with the harder ministry in a moment. But he begins right there. So he says, feed my lambs. This is, if I might put it like this, he's going to Peter and says, okay, you say you like me very much, I'm asking, I'm demanding of you to give me evidence of it. Give me evidence. And what's the evidence? I want you to feed my lambs. What evidence do you have in your life that you like Jesus? Do you have evidence? As if I came up to you after services, what evidence do you have that you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus? What evidence could you say? Because going to church isn't enough. It's part of it. You should be in church. And you should be in a good Bible-believing church. And you should be in a Spirit-filled church. Okay? So, but... It's not enough. It's the relationship that it's all about. And so, what tangible proof do we have that we love Jesus? Are we feeding some lambs? Are you investing your life into the kingdom of God for the glory of God? What are you doing with your life? Because there is not the option for people to do nothing in the kingdom of God. That is not an option anywhere. Nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere. Now, people do that all the time, but you want to know why they do it all the time? Because they don't love Jesus supremely. So they don't have evidence to give of the reality of faith and practice. So they're doing things through themselves and their own desires. Now comes the second rebuke. And the second rebuke is similar to the first. And so, in verse 16, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. You notice anything missing there? You know what's gone from that statement? More than these. He removed that. So now Jesus is just saying, do you agape me? And if I might put it like this, it's, it's more like the first thing he says, do you love me supremely above everything, everyone, every possession, every desire? Do you love me supremely And Peter could not say, yes, he could only say, I like you very much. So then then Jesus says, do you at least love me as much as you love others in your life? Have I at least gotten to that place where you love me that much? Now that's pretty serious. Have I come to the place even to love Jesus as much as I love my spouse or love other individuals? Have I come to that point? That's basically what he's asking them. That's a serious one, though. Because you see people, you can touch them. And you can see them, you can talk with them, you can love a person and experience that love in return. So it can be this mutual thing. And the love that we present to God is by faith, yet that faith will have expressions, such as when we worship and He draws near and we feel His presence. Or we're in the place of prayer and He draws near and we we know that nearness with Him. So it's a real fellowship, but... Uh, You have the situation here that we have to say, have I really come to the place that I like them that much even? That I love them as much as others in my life. Is Jesus just one of the gods among the many gods in my life? You know, Adam Judson, he was America's first missionary up until that time. uh, The colonies and that were just receding Missionaries, And so this was, he was the, the first missionary that went out. And it took uh, seven years for him to get the first convert. He was going to go to India. War broke out between England and India, so he ended up in Burma instead. And seven years. Seven years until the first convert. And you know, he could have baptized. He, he could have had many converts if he would have allowed them to add Jesus to the other gods. That's all he had to do, just say, why don't you make Jesus the supreme God among all the other gods? But he wouldn't do that. He says, that's not Christianity. Christianity is you must forsake all those other gods, and I must be the God above all gods. And you can't have another one in my presence. So, do you at least agape me? Do you you like me to a particular point as much as you like other people or love other people? And again, Peter said, "Yes, Lord, you know that I like you very much." He used the same words for Leo. And Jesus didn't take that on. He's going to. Okay, he's going to deal with it in just a moment. But what does he say here? He says, "Take care of my sheep." Okay, so he goes first to the lambs, and that's kind of the fun ministry. All right, now like you deal with the sheep, and they're not fun. Okay, if you don't, if you've never been a pastor, then you don't know what I'm talking about. Okay. People are messy, and guess what? When they get to adulthood, they have the little bad traits of children just as adults have it now. You know, it's like, man, can they be messy. And uh, a lot of work. I mean, ministry is hard stuff. It really is. But guess what? We'll do it if we love him. So here again, he's bringing us back to the place, bringing Peter back to the place, saying, okay, you say you like me very much, what evidence are you going to give? I want you to feed my lambs, but I want you to feed my sheep as well. And it's those sheep that can give us real problems. I remember that man that was the shepherd in my church, that uh, he had this one particular sheep. And whenever he turned his back on that sheep, that sheep would run and knock him to the ground. Well, you know what happened to that sheep? He became dinner. Okay? I mean, you understand? So, those sheep, they can, they bite, you know? And if you don't understand biting sheep, then just uh, you can ask Pastor to show you some of the scars. I've got a whole slew of them, you know? Because sheep bite. And they can bite and not just bite, they kind of like rip some flesh out with it. You know? It's just a reality. You love people, it's messy stuff and it's hard stuff. You want uh, uh, just a nice, easy life? Well, then, you know, you just go to some desert island somewhere and live by yourself. Now we come to the final rebuke. Verse 17, the third time Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Why was Peter offended that Jesus asked this the third time? He wasn't offended because Jesus asked the third time. He was offended because of how he asked the third time. You see, this is what Jesus said. First thing, Peter, do you love me supremely? Oh, do you like me very much? Do you at least love me among your other idols and gods? Oh, you just like me very much. Well, Peter Do you like me very much? Really? You see, he put aside agape and he picked up Peter's word, phileo. Do you like me at least, Peter? That's what hurt. The confrontation. Why did Peter deny Jesus three times? Only one reason. He loved himself more than God. Why does anyone backslide? Because they stop loving Jesus. Why do we go and give ourselves over to sin? Because we love ourselves more than we love Him. It all comes right down to that first commandment. Always that first commandment. Always must give an answer to that. Because that's really the reality of it. Because if we're going to walk with Jesus, it has to go back to that very first commandment, which is to love Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And what is that? To love Him supremely. To love Him with everything. To be the definer of our life. But what happens is we become people who don't want to love Him all that way. We want to be people that, well, we love the world and we love Jesus and we got all these other gods and we hope it's okay with Him, but that's not the way it works. It's not, it's not the way it works. And so those guys come rushing in with their automatics. There's only one reason why you stay in this room. That's because you love Jesus more than yourself. A Bible education will keep you here. Being a pastor, some teacher, prophet, or whatever you want to call yourself won't keep you in here. None of that will. Only one thing would keep you. Only one thing and one thing alone. And that would be to love him more than you love anybody else. He didn't say when we're confronted with those things that it would be easy. He never said that. But when that love is there, there will be the motivation to say, I would rather be faithful to my God than to deny Him. Let me give you a true story. This happened in a communist nation. The secret police came in to a house church that was meeting secretly, and they, they broke in, and they went up to all the people there. The, all the, the, the police came in, and they went up to, says, any of you that are not Christians... You can leave. The rest of you that are Christians, you're going to be dead. A whole bunch of them just scampered out. One by one, they went and confronted those that claimed to be Christian, gave them a chance to leave, and those that didn't, they executed. And then when the commander of the group was done there, he went outside. And you know what was waiting outside? A bunch of other police that had rounded up all those that had left, and they executed all them. Imagine... Standing before Jesus after you have done what Peter did, but now you're not given opportunity to repent. I don't know what their eternal souls was. I can't say. You know, I'm not even going to speculate. I'm not smart enough. But still, I would not want to have to face him after betraying him like that. Do you love me? Or do you dislike me? Have you come to the place where you are with all this within you, seeking to love me supremely? And so what was the demand that came out of that? It says, okay, feed my sheep again. Feed my sheep. Because if we're going to love him, there's always going to be an expression of love that's going to be there. Now what's interesting is, is what happens at this point now is Jesus prophesies. Okay? And this prophecy is really actually important, very important. Because it says something that is going to be a revelation to Peter that Peter at that moment was probably feeling very hopeless, right? Very hopeless. I, I, I couldn't even tell him I liked him, you know, a whole lot, just somewhat. You know, I mean, it's like to see the, the, the failure of loving the one that he had served for three, three and a half years and. And been with him constantly. And in John 21 and verses 18 and 19, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said, Follow me. Now, what happens after this, we don't really know. Because now Jesus leads the, the the group of men, takes Peter alone, and has some private discussion. He, John's following behind, and he says, and Peter says, "What about him?" He says None of your business, basically is what he said. Follow me. It's none of your business. You walk with me. That's all that I'm calling you to do, is to deal with the reality of your own life. But you know what happens? It is so interesting. Because when Pentecost came, something so dynamically changed in that man and in the apostles. Something dynamically changed. Because what happens a little bit later? Peter and John are going in through the gate beautiful. There's the lame man. Jesus goes up to to the lame man and they say, silver and gold I don't have because the man was begging. I don't have gold, but what I have, because I have Jesus, I have the source of power that can heal you. And he says, Rise and walk. Well, the guy stood up and started walking and leaping and praising God, we're told. And this was at the temple. And they go into the temple, and now this crowd comes because this man was known. He sat in the gate beautiful for how many years? I don't have no idea, but he was well known to the people. So they see this man, and they realize a, a tremendous miracle had taken place. And so now the opportunity rises. Peter had preached on the day of Pentecost got bold right after that there He was this coward. Now he's bold with fire preaching this wonderful message and now this persecution happens. That's going to come out of this. And what takes place is Peter and John are arrested because of the miracle and the preaching that they were doing. And so Peter and John before the Sanhedrin council, the same people that condemned Jesus. The same. And Peter was there in the courtyard of the high priest's house. That's where Jesus turned and looked at him. The same type of setting. Now he stands. Now he won't bow. Now he has come to the place to begin to love Jesus more than himself and found it to be the courage that was necessary to stand in something that could be otherwise disastrous. And then you have a couple verses later. In Acts 5, the apostles are arrested. And how many of the apostles, it doesn't say just the apostles were arrested. And uh, what happens there, though? They're set free by an angel. Okay, so an angel comes and sets them free. What do they do? They don't go and power in a corner. The next day, they're back in the temple preaching. You understand? Something had happened in them. Pentecost made this difference. But it was more than just Pentecost. I believe Pentecost became the impetus, the power, the, 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 the glory that would come there to help them. But now when that help was there, they still had to make the choice to love Jesus more. But they were making the choice. It was becoming more and more real to them. And so... They began to preach in the temple. What happens? They go and they find that they're not in, a, they're not in jail. They find them then in the temple. They take them and they flog them now. So stop preaching in that name. What they do? They went out and continued to preach in that name. Why? Because a love had grown in them that was so intense, so hot, that the world, that persecution, that pain and suffering, or if I might move it into the 21st century America, that a sensual culture was not powerful enough to move them from that love. Because there is a love, and there's a power in that love that is greater, that can cause us to stand. And then in Acts chapter 12, Peter is arrested, and he's arrested by Herod. And Herod had killed James. And this is, according to theologians, and, and after this is roughly somewhere between 12 to maybe 15 years after Jesus had, had uh, rose again and ascended into heaven. And so Herod killed James and realized that it brought a lot of pleasure to the religious elite in Israel. So they arrested Peter. James, let me give you just a little bit of history here. James was the head of the church, not Peter. So those churches that try and make the Pope, there is no biblical basis or historical basis at all for one Pope, none. because the head of the church was not Peter, was James, who wrote the book of James, who is the half-brother of Jesus. And so what happens in that setting? He's supernaturally set free. And he continued to preach. So are you striving to love God supremely? Is that the goal? Now, I'll just share with you my heart on this. I don't believe anybody in this world can attain that place. But it should be the goal of every true follower of Jesus. To love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength should be the goal of every true follower of Jesus. And if it's not your goal, then I challenge you to even look at the reality whether or not you are saved. Because that is something that's inherent with Christianity. It's right there when we are born again. He gives us a new heart, a new mind that we begin to love differently, think differently, act differently. And if that's not the case with you, then something is wrong. And you need to really investigate right now where you stand with Jesus. Do you even like him? Have you come to the point even what Peter could say before Christ's ascension and before the day of Pentecost? Could you even just say, well, I like you very much? Because if that's the case, something should be different in your life than what it was before where you wanted nothing to do with Him. What proof can you offer that you love Jesus supremely? You know, every every one of us, are going to stand before Him. Every single one of us. No matter who it is, it is going to be a scary time. But for those who belong to Jesus, the scariness is going to be different than those who don't belong to Jesus. Because we're going to see this God like we never saw Him before. We're going to see this God of glory and power, but we're going to see something very different, that He's going to have arms outstretched. He's going to be welcoming us, wanting us there. Just like the picture of Stephen when he was martyred, the first martyr of the church. The vision he has, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. You know, arms outstretched, waiting, son, come home. I'm ready to embrace you. But if you're not in that right place with Him, you're going to stand before God but it's going to be different. It's not going to be this place of of mercy. It's going to be a judgment bar. Because you chose not to love Him. You chose to love yourself. You chose to make yourself the center of your life, the center of all that you live for, that you are what you seek to satisfy your pleasure, not the aspect of wanting to be near Him. And you know, I can't help any of you with that. I can't help myself with that. But there's a God who can. And see, that's where the help comes from. so that when we see we're not loving Him like we should, you can't just go and say, I'm going to start loving Him. Well, you're fighting against everything of your flesh and everything of the world and everything of a culture. You have to have supernatural power. You have to have help that comes into your life in a way that brings you to a place to be what you could never be outside of that. Grace that gives you power to begin to love Him in a way you've never loved Him. And what, what's going to happen when you begin to love Him more? You will find that He is worth the pursuit. You will find the joy of that place of fellowship with Him. You'll find this pleasure just being with Him because you'll just see He's not some of the big guy upstairs, but here's now this awesome, holy, infinite God that has broken to my personal world and making Himself known to me. And what it produces is an awe. An awe that He would come and He would rescue Not one of us deserves salvation. It's only a gift. It'll always be a gift. And He breaks into our life to bring us to the point that we can understand the preciousness of that gift. And you know what happens when we begin to know the preciousness of that gift? and we begin to love Him, everything begins to change then because now obedience starts to flow out of our life. And you know what some of us were like. I wouldn't doubt that all of us had dimensions of it, but some of you may be sweet little ladies. Sweet ladies, when you were little girls, you are just adorable little things and, and that's it. But most of our boys were brats, you know? So some of you girls were brats too, but we were all sinners, okay? Some of you were a little nicer than other ones, you know? We were all in that same spot that we had to have this God break into our life. And so what happens as He begins to break into our life on a personal basis, we begin to love Him, that obedience starts flowing out of us. That obedience becomes this natural thing that starts working in us. We want to obey. We find joy in obeying. Where before we, we just had this evil enjoyment in rebelling against authority and parents and this other thing, and I don't want to submit, and I'm going to be my own man, my own woman. And now you start finding this this thing rise up in you that it's the passion of your life just to bring joy to this God because He's brought such joy to you and such pleasure to you and you just want to bring bring this joy to His heart and it's an astounding idea that we mere mortals can bring joy to God. But yet, He has made it that we can. That we can bring joy to His heart. I think it's just an astounding thought that this God would make Himself so real that we could enjoy Him and that He would enjoy us. So are you striving to live out this wholehearted obedience? Are you, are you willing to suffer for Jesus no matter the cost? And you know, church, this is way, 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 way harder than we understand because we don't comprehend what it is to be in a third world country such as what Justin was in just for a little bit. And to see the poverty, the need, the pain, the sorrow, the hurt. We got pleasures, we got comforts, we don't even comprehend the extent of them. And if they were all taken from us in a moment, would we still adore? Would we still love him? Or would we begin to complain? Well, this has been taken and that's been taken, I don't have this and why has this gone on in my life and so easy for us to fall into this thing of despair because we have put so much stake in American culture and not in the place of loving Him supremely. So are you willing to suffer for Him, whether it's the loss of all things, whether it's the loss of life? We're not at that point in America, but it may get there more and more. I and mean, you know, a while ago, one of the mass shootings was at a, was at a, 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 a Christian school. You know, it's, it's, it's ramping up in our country but how many people that call themselves Christians are ready? So let me close with this thought. Paul said something really powerful and disturbing in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, okay, if anyone does not love Jesus, let him be anathema maranatha. Well, we always like to use the word maranatha, which is the Lord comes, but we really don't put on our bumper stickers the uh, anathema. And what does that mean? Cursed. So he says, Cursed is anyone who does not love the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes. The only remedy from that curse, the only answer is loving him is loving Him more than life, is loving Him more than, than wife or children. And mothers, this is a hard one, super hard for, you, for mothers with their, about their children. I mean, because it's easy to love children more than God. I mean, fathers, don't have, they can have a problem with it, but not as bad as mothers because there's that bonding that takes place. You know, you birth the children and, and all that goes on. And do we love Him more? Do we love Him more? Because he says, if you do not love the Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes, cursed will you be. And what is that curse going to be? That you're left behind. I believe in the rapture of the church. I believe it's good Bible. I believe there's a tremendous amount in the Bible that supports it. I'm not going to preach on it. But I'll tell you what, when that trumpet sounds, I want to be ready. I believe it's coming. I have hope. I have that great and blessed hope of the return of the Lord. And the reality of this God that's going to break into our world and call His church home, and I want to make sure I'm among that number. I don't want to be ones that are left behind. And that was given to us in Scripture so that we would make sure we live ready. How do we live ready? Only really one way. To love Him more than anything, anyone, any person. To love Him supremely. Father, we come before You now in the precious and wonderful name of Jesus. It's so strange, Lord, on how we can take the wonder of this faith and then make it so complicated. We can add to it all these do's and don'ts and, and that. And Lord, there are things that we are forbidden to do and things that we are commanded to do. Things that are necessary for us to do. But yet, Lord, we miss it all because it's all about the motive. It's all about the heart. And until the heart is right, until the heart is in this place of passionately pursuing after You, nothing else can be right. Lord, that's why you made it the greatest commandment. That's why you put it it, as the pinnacle of everything, of what we are to seek after and pursue, to love you with everything that's within us. Because when we love you like that, then everything else begins to find its proper place. And when something isn't right, when we love you more than ourselves and more than this world or more than family or anything else, when we love you like we should, then we'll want to get things that are wrong. We'll want to get them right. Because we want to be pleasing to you. We have this joy... God, I'm asking for that to rise up this passion in your church to fall in love with you, to see you the most lovable being that there is, the most lovable being that we could ever set our affection on, and to know your love is the most fulfilling and wonderful and beautiful thing that could ever happen to a mortal. God, I'm asking that you would awaken that in us. Lord, how much sin would fall off of our life if we loved you more? How much worldliness and compromise, how much of the things in this life that is just meaningless would just fall away in this this love that would be just consuming us and we would be driven then by a purpose greater than we have ever understood because you were calling Peter to love you supremely and you gave him purpose in his life to feed the lambs and feed the sheep. God, when we love you like we should, the natural outgrowth of that is expression of love towards others to family, to friends, to strangers, to a dying world, to the church. Lord, it all comes down to be that one thing, to love You more than life itself. And God, sweet Jesus, we ask that You take us there. Lord, You know any that are here this morning that they don't love You supremely. They don't agape You maybe. There may be some here that they don't even like you. Lord, I'm asking for a revolution in some lives then. A spiritual revolution, Lord. Because that's what you said. Speaking of the New Testament, you said that I will give them a new heart and a new mind. And the whole idea behind that is that we will have a new heart that will have new loves and we will love you with everything and a new mind that will begin to think properly because the old wrong way of thinking that was immersed in self-love and self-idolatry and the love of this world will be, be done away with as our way of thinking is transformed. God, that's the New Testament. That's what it is that comes out of being born again. This spiritual, moral, mental revolution inside of our lives. Lord, for anybody here that is not a true follower of Jesus or anybody here that's a backslider, God, I'm asking that they would feel right now the tug of the Holy Ghost upon them. That they would feel your pull because you are calling them. You are wanting them to run home. Lord, you don't need them. You've never needed one person. You're God. You are self-existent, but Lord... Within your very character, you are a God that cares for your creation. You care for fallen mankind. You care for rebels. And Lord, you came to this world to rescue them, Lord. And I'm asking for anybody that is not right with you, Lord, that they would just see you with open arms, willing to forgive, willing to restore, willing to make right, willing to heal the wounds, the bruises, the scars that come from living in this wicked world, O God. Lord, let people run to that place because there's no other place of healing. There's no other place of life. So Jesus, speak to any that are not right with you. And Lord, I'm also asking that you speak to to Christians that they have not, the goal of their life is not to love you supremely. You're an addition to their life. You may be something that they could say like, Peter, I like you very much. God, I'm asking that you convict them of that. I'm asking that you help them to see the shallowness of what that is, that it is not the biblical faith. And Lord, that they would want to run run to you this morning and say, God, I don't even know how to get there. I don't know how to get to that place to love you supremely. But that they would begin to cry out to a God that finds joy in transforming lives. You find joy in that, oh God. Jesus, sweet Jesus, sweet Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. If you're not a true follower of Jesus, there's a God that's waiting for you at this altar to run home to Him. Waiting for you to run home. It is His heart. It is His passion. It is His desire. In ways you can't even imagine that He is longing Longing for you to run to him. He's seen the pain. He's seen the sorrow of what sin has done. He knows your past. He knows the evil that you have done. That's not a mystery to him. And he is offering to be the remedy to your life, the remedy to your pain, the remedy to your sin, the remedy to your history. But there's no negotiating. You can't negotiate with Him. You can't go and say, well, how about if I give you Sunday morning and the rest of the week is mine? If you come, you come to Him, and you take all of your miserable self, with all the sin and all the garbage and all the pain and all the sorrow and all the past, and you take it to the foot of the cross and you throw yourself at His feet and you say, God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Because there's a God that wants to rescue you. There's a God that wants to save you. But He'll only save those who want saving. Those who don't want saving, He'll leave you to your sins. But those who want saving, He is so quick to be there to rescue you from your own self-destruction. So I guess that's the big question, isn't it, for any of you that are backsliders or that are not in the true faith. Do you want saving? Or do you want to keep doing what you've been doing doing for all these years and keep doing it again and again, having the same results, only getting worse and worse by the year as you give yourself to the same sins that have never satisfied you and will never satisfy you? There's a God that wants to rescue you. Dr. Dr. Adams. Everybody please stand. For some of you, the thing that will keep you from this altar, from coming to Christ, is your pride. What a terrible thing to keep you from a God that wants to rescue you, your pride. That you are so afraid of what people think. Because that's what pride is. Pride is fear of man, being afraid of what people think. He's calling you to run home to Him. All that matters is whether you obey and you run home. That's all that matters. If you are not a follower of Jesus and you want to come home to Him, if you're a backslider and you want to run home to the Father, I want you right now to walk down this aisle and walk up to me. I want you to lay aside your pride and your fear. Will you not come